Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. for joining us this evening and sharing your time with us. We know that time is probably one of the most precious things we have, so when people do take the time to listen to our shows, please know how greatly we appreciate that. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for that amazing intro. If you haven't checked out his website, nativestorytellers.com, please do. He and his wife have a fabulous website there, and listening to their stories is an adventure in history and mysticism and magic and wonder. So check it out when you get a chance. Mark's got a great guest tonight, one of my favorite people, and I can't wait for them to get going because they're always so much fun when they get together. So, Mark, want to oops, take it away. All right. Hey, it's nice to have you back, Barbara. Nice to be back. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Two months without my uh, sidekick. <laughs> well, I was here. I but, just wasn't kicking. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had uh, what? Uh, last week uh, there was what? Three days of uh, tech issues. But, running uh, silent. Well, I think they they call it in submarine running silent. Yes. No. No noise. Okay. No voice. No nothing. But I. Yeah, I did a little talk with uh, Blog Talk's English Robo Babe, and she knows who's the boss now. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Say it quietly, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and I uh, wanted to let it, uh, everyone know the uh, Twilight Zone at 60 conference was a success. Uh just a lot of fun, amazing people. Uh, attendance was uh, greatly boosted over last year. So ho- hopefully uh, some of the people heard the shows. Um, and but, you know, there were people from Ireland, England, Brazil, Canada, um, in many places from the East Coast. Uh, 
and made lots of uh, new friends like Johnny, Helen, Shelley, uh, Mark Olshaker, and you know got re- reacquainted with others like Mike, Nick, uh, Martin, uh, Mark, and Ann, and they've all been guests with us. Uh, and you know, I'm working on developing some other uh, shows based on some of the presenters. Um, Rick Osmond said the AAPS, uh, you know, had very good attendance as well, and everyone had a great time. Uh, Wayne mentioned that there were some new projects in in, in the works, and uh, Rick mentioned Lon Krieger's um, presentation was uh, very informative. And then there's the uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference, October 17th through the 20th at the Mark Twain House in Hartford, Connecticut. So you know, we've been promoting those four conference uh, and the Mothman Conference. So uh, we've done three of them. There's one more to go, but um, so far they've gone very well. And as we enter the Halloween season, we thought it would be appropriate to have the Queen of Halloween return, maybe from beyond the grave, or at least from the beach. Uh, Varla Ventura is here to give us uh, (laughs) goosebumps, laughs, and her insights. She's the author of Paranormal Parlor, Banshees, Werewolves, Vampires, and Other Creatures of the Night, Fairies, Pukas, and Changelings. A complete, a complete guide to the wild and wicked, enchanted realm and among the mermaids. Uh, facts, myths, and enchantments from the sirens of the seas. And um, yeah, so let's bring on Varla first. Hi, Varla. Hi. How you doing? Hi, Mark. Hi, Barbara. Good. I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Happy October. Yeah, yeah. We, it it's the month, the season. The month. <laughs> yeah, whole whole month of uh, celebrations. And yeah, the last time you were on Nightlight Part Two, I think you were leaving like the next day or so for. Uh, with J- Jamaica or you know the Caribbean to um, research pirates. So h- how's that? Yeah, that's what I told on? everyone. <laughs> I said I was researching pirates, but really, <laughs> um, it was wonderful. I but, went to a couple different places in the Caribbean, and I actually went to the Turks and Caicos as well. Um, and discovered some little-known pirate history there in between, you know, rum tasting. I mean, that's pirate research, right? You gotta, you okay. gotta know what. what. <laughs> okay, so so you had your toes. So so basically, you had your toes in the sand, uh, pina colada in your writing hand, and no book. So 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 the introductions basically was longer than our discussion on pirates. <laughs> Look, you call it what you want. I call it research, okay? I need to live as the pirates once lived. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. really... I see your method. 
to really feel, I needed to feel, you know, what does this water feel like? You know, what, what is this beach like on a moonlit night? These kinds of things are, you know, just sort of setting the stage for the, the research. Well, you were kind of teasing me because I've been talking about this book for quite a while and I have actually been working on it, but you, you were saying, is the book done yet? It's like, well, <laughs> no, it's not done yet. <laughs> But um, I did actually find I did do some legitimate research. Uh, we I, I traveled all over. Uh, the, I did some Florida, Florida Keys, um, Jamaica, and I did go down all the way to the Turks and Caicos, where I was sort of surprised by some of the hidden pirate history that I found there. Um, not as extensive as it would be in some of the um, other more northern Caribbean islands, but there was definitely uh, some interesting stories there. And um, yeah, so I also took a trip to Ireland and did some pirate research there. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I initially started out thinking that the majority of my stories and the things that I'd be researching would be in the Caribbean, which a lot of pirate history is in that area. But the thing is, is, you know, a lot of the pirates were Irish, English, Spanish. There were a few Dutch pirates. They were defecting against the crown, right? Like that, that's what they were Mm -hmm. sort of fighting against. So there are a lot of pirate origin um, stories, especially in Ireland and um, places where pirates lived and um, ruled the Irish coastline. So as you know, that's one of my favorite places to go. I don't need an excuse to travel to Ireland, but it had been a while and I'm always researching, you know, love folklore wherever I go. I'm, asking questions and meeting local archaeologists who are doing tours and asking them things. And there's always Ireland, such a magical country. There's always something new to discover there. You could go there. You, you could visit there every year as on a, on a regular vacation and still has a completely unique experience. And it's just a magical place. It's really it's one of those places that if you, if you plan all the things that you think you're going to do, yes, you can do the tourist circuit and, you know, you can kind of, you know, kiss the Blarney stone and all that. Lord knows I don't mm-hmm. need to kiss the Blarney stone. Right. I think you have the gift of gab uh, even before going to Ireland. So <laughs> it's in my blood. Um, yeah. So I think, and it's always good to go back and be reminded of this, and I think people who travel to Ireland and people who live in Ireland can attest to this, but it's really the kind of place that you've got to just slow down and let, I always say, let Ireland do you. You don't go there and whirlwind through it, and you can. You can take a tour bus right over, you know, some fairy mound and you wouldn't even know it. But when you stop and you just take a little time and you have some things unplanned and you wander, 
you find incredible things. You, you meet incredible people. You learn stories. Everybody has stories. And I'm telling you, the, the cab driver is going to tell you, is a better storyteller than I could ever think to be. It's just, it's this wonderful part of the culture that I, I think that's one of the reasons I'm always going back there because I really admire how much they revere the arts and literature and the art of storytelling and the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the art of storytelling, the actual act of sharing stories. Um, So yeah, I had a great time and I discovered a a pirate that I didn't know very much about. And um, I just completely fell in love with her and she's definitely a strong, a a big chunk of There's a whole, whole chapter in my book. So I have a chapter about famous pirates, of course, but I've dedicated an entire chapter to famous female pirates. And there's a few that okay. we've uh, that we've heard of that many of us have heard of over the years. Um, but this woman, I had I actually found out about her through reading a guidebook on this one part of um, Ireland, and it just mentioned that you can go to Grace O'Malley's gravesite. And it said Pirate Queen Grace O'Malley. And it was like, what? Pirate Queen Grace O'Malley? How have I never heard of this person? And I was completely shamed and uh, internally, of course, and then promptly started researching and discovering all the places I could go to find out more about her and found a couple of wonderful books about her that are a little harder to find in the United States and, um, you know, met somebody who's, is, uh, who's married to a descendant of Grace O'Malley and just really, um, her story is really incredible. Yeah. I'm sure the audience, you know, probably heard of, um, Ann Bonnie. And I think, yeah. Yeah, I think she was uh, ha- Mary ha- head of. Yeah, that, uh, okay, that's it. I was trying to think of her friend's name, but uh, it, what was special about uh, Grace O'Malley? What you know? What what were some of her exploits? So Grace O'Malley um, was sort of the descendant of a. The, of a, a pretty wealthy family. Um, her father was a merchant and they sort of ruled from Clue Bay, which is just north of Galway. And kind of that sort of the, the northwestern coast there, which is fairly rugged as you get up like closer into like County Donegal in that area. And she really disliked the English. She had, of course, like many kids, you know, talking politics and seeing the um, oppression that their families are fighting against. She gleaned that the English were at the, um, and and the king were at the the core of their problems. And her father had, um, he was, he was a rebel and he declared, um, he wanted to wage war on the English and kind of teamed up with the Spanish Armada. And this is what really hooked me about Grace O'Malley. So the, the story is, is that she was 11 years old and she 
wanted to learn to fight. She wanted to, she wanted her father to teach her the pirating ways, and she wanted to learn to fight and she wanted to join him on the ship and fight the English. And he said, well, you're a girl. You can't. And he made some kind of comment like your hair will get tangled up in the ropes. And then he, he left. Well, that night um, while they were planning their route, she chopped off all of her hair and stowed on board the vessel. And as they set out to sea, there was young Grace O'Malley like, well, now you have to teach me because it's the only way I'm going to survive. And so that is how the pirate queen was really born. Um, And I'm like, what a great story. So there's a lot of, you know, little stories about her. I'm still, I'm only about halfway through reading this wonderful biography about her. Um, But she ruled this coastline for um, you know, most of her life, so, so you know, 50-something years. I think she died when she was in her in her late 60s, early 70s, and uh, there's one sort of castle, and when I say castle, it's sort of a humble castle. It's a bit more of a, of a stone tower. So she had a, a castle on this, on Clare Island, and then that's where her she's said to be buried but there's another castle um so there's one in westport and then there's another town called eastport which is just slightly east of westport and it's one of those Mm -hmm. places where you you kind of have to hope you know that that you wrote the directions down right because you're wandering down this road and i'm going there and it's sunset and there's literally a rock that just says castle it's painted on the rocks as castle with an arrow like okay well I'm, I'm going the right way I guess and so I uh I pull up and the sun is setting and it's hitting this stone tower and there's this wonderful story about Grace O'Malley you can't go in it this particular castle is having structural issues and again it's sort of more of like a think of a, a squat Rapunzel tower and I can share some pictures of her tower on the, my Facebook page later. But okay. there's this great story that she, she, she died in this castle. And um, her bed was on the very top. And there's a hole in the, in the wall that goes out toward the bay. So where the castle is, there's sort of a stream. And then it's one of those places where when the, it's the moors. So when the tide comes in, um, you know, you can pour, pull a boat fairly close in and the boat you know then it quickly drops off into the bay so the legend is that she would sleep at night and would had a a rope that went from her ship through the wall of the castle around her bedstead so if anybody tried to take her ship in the night the you know the ship took off it would pull her bed against the wall and she would wake up and then would can you know start to fight so that's just um one of the many wonderful stories about grace o'malley <laughs> okay it, it you know Vorla, um one of my friends from the conference uh rachel you know just said uh yeah this is you know love the guests and it's uh fascinating information and you know, I started getting into 
a little bit of uh, profiling pr from the conference as well. And you know, you, you, know, you do are, are presenting you know, some interesting information about uh, Grace uh, ha having a motivation for what she's doing. It's just not all out, uh, just slaughtering people. It, you know, you know there's a reason, you know, she's, uh, fighting for, uh, what's social justice. And, you know, you're, you're creating an interesting profile for her. That's you know, different from maybe some of the other, um, Male um, pirate who are j just there for, or got got involved in piracy just for the money. But yeah, was there? Did, yeah, did she have a crew? And oh yeah, was was she involved like using a, a cutlass or a gun? You know. Was there a certain weapon that she preferred? You know, you know, what does that say about her? I just, I just, if you haven't gotten that far in your research yet, just well, uh, she certainly had a crew. Um, okay. And she, so just consider the so the time in which she was born. I think it was she was under the rule of good old Henry VIII. And I think we all know that under Henry VIII, women were quite disposable. And Grace O'Malley had to really fight because her family came, you know, she had this, there was a, there was a, a lot of substantial, she wasn't from some, she, an impoverished family. They had a goodly amount of money. And of course, as a woman during, I mean, we're, we're talking like 1500s, right? Early 1600s. Mm -hmm you didn't just inherit whatever your father had if you were the only one to inherit it. It always went to a brother, sometimes a cousin, um, you know, or you marry and it goes to your husband and everything's actually really in your husband's name. And she didn't necessarily resist against that because how could she really resist against that? However, she did manage to um, – really put forth her own independence throughout her marriages and throughout her um, entire life on a level that is legendary. I mean, truly legendary. She certainly had a crew. Um, she had a number of of very, you know, faithful crew members. I, and I'm, I haven't finished the, you know, all of my research. I have, two other books that I'm reading on her. Um, but she definitely had um, a stronghold. Um, and she was a very fierce fighter. She actually um, really was feared by a number of other people and, of course, um, the, uh, the English themselves feared um, now, something interesting, there's a little bit of a parallel story that I heard in a couple of other places about um, when Elizabeth I took the throne. And uh, she often said, there, it, it's, it, 
at that time, you know, Henry VIII was not Catholic, right? So he mm-hmm. was basically saying, like, you have to, uh, there's one king and one God, and it all goes to me, and it's all mine, basically, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Now, Elizabeth was, um, I think I'm getting this, I think I've got my history right, but Elizabeth was um, Catholic, and so there were several Irish families they couldn't be called kings at the time, so they really were kings by Irish definition, but they were called earls because there could only be one king based on um, king, you know, like Henry VIII. So um, Elizabeth actually offered a lot of um, – she wasn't Catholic. It was Mary, Queen of Scots, who came along and was the Catholic right. one. But Elizabeth did – when she came into reign, she did um, – sometimes extend like if you just swear allegiance to me I will restore your properties and so that kind of background had happened a few times in her father's life and in her um her um life growing up I mean you figure she kind of really started when she was 11 or 12 um and you know she had a lot of trials and tribulations she was impoverished she did swear allegiance to Elizabeth in order to get some of her properties restored. There was a lot of things. Um, I think she was probably, if she had a, you asked about a weapon. And okay. I, I think that she was good with many weapons. I do know that she was a dead shot. So she had a really excellent um, hand with a, uh, I mean, then it would have been kind of like a handgun. And I'm sure she always carried some other weapons on her. I haven't really got too deep into her weaponry, but I have a whole section in my book on like Irish weaponry and methods and what different, um, you know, pirates would, would use and why. Um, But I'm not really done with that section yet, but that's a whole part of the, of the book that I'm working on, but she does really appeal to me because, um, she did, she certainly did something a little different. Now I'm, that's not to say that I, you know, I mean, Anne Bonnie, what Anne Bonnie and, and Mary Reed did, you know, they were, Grace O'Malley didn't dress like a man. She dressed like a pirate, but she didn't dress like a man. Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed, especially Mary Reed were known to dress like, um, boys in order to like kind of hide themselves on, on ships or if, you know, their ships were raided. Everybody knew Grace O'Malley was a woman and she was fierce and she was, I mean, she was, you don't get the name pirate queen. I mean, she was called the fearsome or gruesome pirate queen um, back then and is still revered as the pirate queen. So <laughs> it, uh, really uh, cool. Uh, was she just targeting only English ships, or is you know, just open season on anyone? She was, oh, you know, more than anything, she was protecting her sort of ancestral lands. This is my understanding. So she was repeat. Oh. She had a fleet of ships that were protecting. Um, sort of that coast of Ireland and she was maintaining her stronghold and should anybody come into that region trying to of course take her wealth or other wealth um, 
then they were at her mercy. So she sailed, but it she certainly spent a good deal of time just sort of in a slightly more defensive fashion, or I don't want to say opportunistic, but um, that was fairly common, actually, that people would sort of wait in a bay that they knew really well, whether it was in the Caribbean or in Ireland or in another part of the world. And then when merchant ships would come through, um, you know, she could, she could take, um, she could take hold. Or if a, you know, she had a whole fleet of trading ships. I mean, she still kept that sort of merchant business going. And if anyone tried Hmm. to, um, you know, bother her, she would just, you know, shoot them and take the ship over. So, I mean, as as one as one does. <laughs> okay. Like, so there's uh, a lot more to her story, and that's you know, I again, I'm only just sort of well, you know, a little bit into her. Um, the because the thing is, is there's a lot of inf- so once you like hear her name, you can Google her name and you can find stuff on a few different websites. Of course, you can go to Wikipedia, and there's a summary of her. But there's a the book that I have, which I don't have right here with me, um, and and so the name of the author has totally escaped me. But it's a woman, it's an, it's an Irish woman, who spent like 20 years researching, and then she wrote this book, and then she went back and did like an annotated version, um, like 20 years later. So there's a more recent publication. And like any story and any, you know, legend, there's all kinds of speculation. And you find this especially, it can be especially difficult to find the truth about um, women because there are so many layered stories like, you know, a woman that is powerful is often just, you know, thought of as evil. And um, so there'll be these stories where this person might get this legend, this, um, this, uh, reputation for being devilish or in cahoots with the devil or witchy or whatever. And it's really just because they had more land than someone else. And someone, and the person telling the story was the person in, in power or wanted to be in power. And so you definitely have to take an, a real kind of, um, I guess, just a careful approach if you're, I mean, it's, you could read about it all you want, but if you're going to actually try and like write it or like, I'm, I want to put it in a book, I'm really trying to make sure that the information is accurate and that what I'm putting in there isn't, you know, just the rumors that this woman's book is just incredible to extensively researched. And, you know, she interviewed people who were descendants. Um, there are still descendants of the O'Malley's. In fact, that's who operates the, uh, ferry to get out to um, Clare Island, where her grave is, is descendants of the O'Malley's. Actually, I think it's called O'Malley Ferry Company. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of um, uh, misinformation. I don't even know if it's misinformation, but there are a lot of drips and drabs of information that aren't entirely accurate. There are some good resources, but overall, I would say there's some some general assumptions that. Um, I think the woman who researched the book um, sort of disproved about her. And so I can't really give the full scope until I've done my own research, which includes her book and two others 
that I'm reading and then some um, interviews with people who are legends of the or descendants of the of Grace O'Malley. Okay. Well, you know, had uh, uh, another uh, friend to think that uh, you know she she must be related to Grace uh, because she, you know she was also a uh, a uh, good shot. Uh, uh, you know, may, maybe Grace went to uh, sail to Pompano Beach, but you know, we could save that for another show. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't, I don't want to get, uh, you know, get, give your whole book away uh, uh, right now. So you know, uh, you know, we save your your information for when it's uh, completed, and you can come back and. Uh, get, go into more detail because you, you you already have some of my friends uh, already wound up. So, uh, you know, so, <laughs> I'm so, so we should as fast as I can. I swear, I swear. <laughs> okay, well, okay. So ho- ho- hopefully it will be done soon. I, I, you already have about uh, three or four people uh, wanting the book, so it's you know we'll let you finish that and. Uh, fill us in <laughs> on all the details when it's completed. But yeah, you, know, you also went to um, you know one of your favorite literary heroes, uh, uh, grave site. You went to William Butler Yeats's grave. Uh, you know he, and I think he's in all of your books. You know some uh, quote at the beginning of a chapter or, or a whole. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Chapter in, in uh, one of your uh, one of his poems is in all of your books. I, yeah, he, he was another you know what 20th century author from that northwestern part of Ireland. Uh, okay, so let, let let's switch. A little, over from the pirates to William Butler Yeats and your interest in his literary career. What what was going on at his grave site as well? So he's um, buried. It's actually this kind of great story. You you may have heard it about his grave, and I'll have to. Uh, See if I can if I can get it right because I had never heard this story before. So he's buried. It's in um, it's in County Mayo. Um, uh, sorry, it's in it's in County Sligo, and it's it's just right outside of kind of like the town of Sligo. You go to this, you could you could easily pass it. There's just all of a sudden this brown sign that says Yates Grave with an arrow. And I mean, it's an official sign and everything, but it, you, I don't know. I think I was expecting like this, you know, massive, uh, big sign with, um, you know, I don't know, scroll work or something saying the grave of William Butler Yates, take your next ride. Or, you know, here in the U S it's always like on your right, one more mile on your right, one more half mile on your right, take your Mm -hmm. right, right here. Okay. Now, you know, so it's often you're cruising along and Ireland's happened again and again. It's just like, don't, don't miss the brown signs. You're going to see these brown signs and they are 
key because they're historic landmarks, um, castle ruins, old churchyards. So at Gates Grave, so I pull over, and um, there's uh, there's actually kind of two. It's not two cemeteries, but there, it looks like there's two cemeteries because there's a kind of a wide path in between them, and there's a church, and then it looks like there's a couple of little shops and like a place to get tea or something. And so it's just not at all what I expected, and I, I certainly had never looked up what his grave looked like or anything like that. Um, and uh, you kind of you park and you just sort of stroll over, and I walk up. And I immediately noticed this cat, this cat is sitting on this grave and I make eye contact with this cat and I say hello and I squat down and this cat just comes tearing across the little gravel lot in front of the church and just gets basically right into my lap. And then I look up and I see that the cat was actually curled up on Yates's grave but that and I didn't even notice the gravestone because I was so enchanted with this adorable little black and white kitty that was just purring really loudly and just loving and then my son came along and he sat down and the cat just curled up on his lap I mean it was just the most adorable thing and I couldn't help but think that that like I thought well you know that would make sense if he came back as like a cat and just hung out on his own grave to see who came to see him and then, you know, bestowed some affection on people who acknowledged him. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny. And then his grave is very simple. It's a very, just, you know, just as WB eights and um, just graveled stones and just very, very simple, but a nice headstone. So, I didn't, it doesn't say this anywhere, like at the church and you can, there's a little church there and you can go in and um, kind of just wander around the cemetery and the, the um, mountain, I, I think it's called Belboven is like right there that he, he wrote a poem about and um, he kind of had his own eulogy saying like, you know, bury me at the base of this mountain. And so you couldn't actually see the top of the mountain because it was very foggy that day, which just added to the atmosphere, of course. Mm-hmm. So I picked up a book. I think it might have been in the gift shop. And it was talking about how it's that they sent, he died in, I, I want to say he died in Spain or something like that. And so his body was shipped back, but it was, um, his friend said the only thing left of, uh, you know, Yates in that box is like a femur bone or something. So they said mm. that, that wasn't him, that the, the, you know, there was l- rumors that the box was really light and that the bones that were in there didn't belong to him. And so in more recent times, they actually did some genetic testing. And in fact, the, skeleton that is in the grave is not believed to be um, fully William Butler Yates. And they're, you know, because I think he was actually buried and then exhumed and brought there. So um, he was like, oh, yeah, here, yeah, yeah, this is definitely Yates, right? Like, here, just, just, you know, take my give me, give me some money for it. And I guarantee you this is Yates' femur or whatever. So I didn't know that, but I thought that was kind of interesting. So it's really kind of regardless of 
how many of his bones are in that grave. His father was a, um, uh, it wasn't, not, the word isn't reverend. I can't, the words escaped me, but his father um, was basically like the, the clergy of that church. And so his father is buried right next to him. That's another reason why he's placed there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just my, the, you know, I just spent a lot of time with the cat and um, just, I'm just curious if anybody else has visited that grave in the last few years and met this cat, because I think they probably would know exactly what I'm talking about. This little white and, or black and white cat, just very sweet and kind of petite and just like, likes the sun itself right on. Of all the graves, he really suns himself and curls up there's even a little bit of like a spot you can see in the stones where the cat has sort of made his little bed in, uh, on the grave and I think it's maybe he's just figured out that that's where all the people are going and he'll get the most pets and potentially the most you know cheese or something if the people hang out you know he just gets the most affection if he hangs out on Yates's grave but it's really cool. And then there's actually this wonderful little shop there. So there's a, it's not like, it's not grotesquely touristy. There's this lovely little tea shop where you can get like the most amazing teas and pastries and things. But also right there, there was this great kind of art gallery. And in that art gallery were um, several pieces of jewelry and books by this man that I had um, sacred stone sites of Ireland and I had gotten it like 20 years ago and you can't find it in the United States. And he's just published like a handful of these books about different sacred sites and the wheel of the year and some different things like that. And they had a whole collection of them. So I was like, this place is just great. So, you know, buying up the books and, talking about talking with a guy there who hand makes instruments and things like that. And so that's my, that's my Yates story, a little more Irishy than um, super magical, but it was magical in its own way. And he's, you know, I, he's in all of my books because his, you know, he, I wrote about mermaids. Of course he has writing about mermaids, but especially banshees and changelings and fairies. He knows so, you know, he spent so much time in Ireland, traveling around Ireland, gathering these stories, uh, the old stories, as they say, and putting them to paper at a time when uh, the the Irish culture was really in jeopardy of losing a lot of those things. And yes, he put Mm -hmm. his own kind of spin on them and certainly there's a little, you know, there's a tinge of uh, ethnocentrism in there. I think, but I also think that he did, he preserved some aspects of the Irish culture kind of single-handedly by, by, by doing that and really, and being a, he was already a respected writer when he did that. So people listened to him. And I think that's something of great, great value. And, you know, one of the reasons I really admire him so much. And I know you're a fan too. (laughs) Yeah, and his uh, was the Lake Isle of Innisfree is pretty much a classic uh, 20th century um, sample of 
uh, poetry. Um, He's Yeats came along. He's like one of those transitional uh, figures in literature where, like you said, you know, there's a lot of things going on and. You know, where uh, the Irish culture was really losing its identity, and you know, he 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 really did try to uh, make uh, you know the readers not forget you know their uh, proud heritage. And he, right. you know, he was he was and still is beloved because writers were and storytellers poets were and are important and in Ireland they you know there has always been a history of the importance and the reverence for Mm -hmm. that as an art form and so I mean you know a lot of places have hero worship but it's pretty cool when that hero worship as you know a bunch of super cool writers and and uh musicians and um your occasional pirate queen thrown in. <laughs> I'll say, you know, I, I, I'm glad you're you know, t- telling us about how much you got out of this uh, research vacation. And just you just <laughs> yeah. need to put it all in a, exactly uh, a, what it is. <laughs> a book now. Yeah. Uh, uh, where where is uh, William's body? Uh, where's the rest of it? And it's kind of like sounds like Einstein's brain, where uh, you know his, his entire brain it, uh, was not with his body when it was buried. Uh, uh, what do we know? What happened between Spain and Ireland when he was returned? So. Um, no, we don't. We know that he died and it could actually not have been Spain. It could have been, um, hold on. Let me, let me look. I have the book right here that has the story in it. Okay. I, I, Cause I, you know, you oh. know, it's the kind of thing. Okay. So okay. he actually it, it, died in France. He died in France. Oh, so okay. he, he died in France. It was, um, 1930s so it was pre-world war ii and he was mm-hmm. buried there but he was buried when he was buried it was always a temporary grave right like it was like okay we're gonna of course he's gonna go back to ireland so what we know and i read a kind of an interesting article like a, a bbc article from a few years ago about this and so we know that so he said that he wanted to go back to ireland those were his like final wishes um his family made those arrangements and we uh, you know to the best of everyone's knowledge they sent the you know they sent him back and he was repatriated that's what everybody thought until i think like about 10 years ago when it came out that there was a lot of mingling of bones at the time because he actually wasn't repatriated until after World War II because when the time came to repatriate him and things you know took a while, mm-hmm. World War II broke out. And, 
the last thing that was going to happen then, if he was in France, I mean, France was like being completely bludgeoned during World War II. So the repatriation of William Butler Yates took a back seat. So what they think supposedly is that his bones, um, you know, he that when they exhumed him, and they may have left him there on purpose for a period of time because if you think about it, you can't just, like, bury a body for, like, six months and then go and get it. You really kind of got to give it time to decompose, right? Otherwise, you're you're carrying this really stinking, rotting thing. So it was probably always meant to be a bit of time before it was um, exhumed, before his body was exhumed and repatriated. So okay. we don't uh, really know, but there are suggestions that he his bones were um, mixed up with the bones of others who were being similarly in temporary graves and were being um, moved or repatriated. So we don't, I mean, how great would it be to find out who's actually there? Who's okay, in his what? grave? Like, who's been hanging out in his grave? And I want to tell you what his grave says because I have a picture of it here. Because okay. I took some photos. And I have photos of the cat, too, which I should put up on the page after. Um, so his his grave is very simple. And it says, cast a cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by, which is a quote of his. And then it just says W.B. Yeats, and it says, you know, the year he was born and then the year he died. So he was born in 1883, died in 1939. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's probably a lot more to the story that I haven't really um, read up on, but they don't know how or why, but they're speculating that it was mixed up just um, – no, not on purpose. <laughs> no, it, it it happens. On, on I've uh, had include that in an article where yeah, there there are like three femurs in one ossuary collection, and you know uh, they know it. It's either. Uh, Curators, the museum know it's not a valid you know, uh, DNA testing uh, site. So, uh, you know, I, I understand. It, it, you know, we've <laughs> okay, so discussed I have a, that I on the show. An article here. Yeah, it says. Um, hold on. Let's see. I printed part of this article that I read a while ago. So it says. Um, there were always doubts about the authenticity of William, but this is from Irish times from like 2015. There were always doubts about the authenticity of William Butler Yeats's bones, even before they were transferred from France for reburial in Drumcliff churchyard in September, 1948, post-World War II. Aware that the poet's remains had been scattered in an ossuary in 1946, Yeats's friends attempted to dissuade his widow, George, from going through with repatriation. At the ceremony in County Sligo, the poet Louis McNeese protested that the shiny new coffin transported by the Naval Service was more likely to contain a Frenchman with a club foot. That was his quote. 
So I think they knew that it was very unlikely that they would be able to identify his bones correctly and then send it. Then it says, Bernard Hello, the French diplomat who was sent to Roqueburn to locate Yates' missing remains early in 1948, probably paid a hefty sum, might I add. Nine years after the poet's death, reported that it was, quote, impossible to return the full and authentic remains of Mr. Gates and proposed asking Dr. Rebolo, the local sworn pathologist, to reconstitute a skeleton presenting all the characteristics of the deceased. So what they thought might have been an accident actually may have been um, sort of somewhat deliberate in order to just appease the family. Um, Alfred Hollis, an Englishman who died around the same time as Yates and who was initially buried next to him, wore a steel corset for spinal tuberculosis. In his certificate of exhumation from March 20th, 1948, Revelo based his reconstitution of Yates' skeleton on the presence of a thoracic corset. Yates' son, Michael, said he wore a leather truss for a hernia. So maybe they're saying it could have been this uh, uh, other guy whose bones were hanging out in this ossuary. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure now, today, they can actually do DNA testing and, you know, probably figure out whose bones those actually are. But it's kind of I'm this sure great there's a scandal. <laughs> no, I'm sure there's a descend, uh, descendant alive. Yeah, you know, you know, he. William died only in the what uh, about the ninety 30. years ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, he he's got to have uh, you know great grandson still alive. But it, you know, what once you get your 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 pirate book done, your next book can be on where where are William's remains? Yeah. See, there, <laughs> There we go. What, and and where got another trip. Williams. <laughs> yeah. There you go. God, that would be a fun project, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, and again, that's the kind of thing. There, I, I just thought, oh, I'm just going to go see, you know, Yates's grave, and then I just stumbled upon this whole backstory that I personally didn't know about, and I'm a, I'm a. Not an expert on him, but I'm certainly a uh, you know a fan. So, a fan girl of Yates. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so it, let's see what. You know, since, since we're uh, you know co- covering a lot of these uh, European settings, Sligo and. Uh, Westport and Clue Bay. Um, in in your paranormal parlor, you know, might as well uh, stick with you know the Halloween theme and look at the subterranean um, cemeteries. And our buddy Jeff Bellinger. Uh, Gave you his report on visiting the Parisian catacombs. Yes. Uh, uh, maybe t- touch on that for a little bit, and 
maybe we can get in some the uh, book channeled by Mark Twain or uh, Mark Twain channeled a book to uh, yes, uh, what's the ghost your name? of Mark Twain. Uh, yeah, that's Emily it. Yeah. Grant Hutching. Yes, the the, yeah, that, the novel that's, yeah, that's written, I mean, via, written via Ouija board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, let's 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 stick uh, with bones. Should we go down the bones? Yeah, yeah, bo- bones yeah we just first. <laughs> yeah, just mm. go from an above ground cemetery to underneath the city of uh, Paris. Yes, and for anyone who isn't familiar with like an ossuary, an ossuary is essentially like a place where bones or bodies are laid to rest and the bones are often displayed in a beautiful fashion. Um, There's an ossuary in the Czech Republic that has a a chandelier that's made of all the bones in, in a human body. Um, and, and there's a lot of sort of like artful arranging of these bones, but it's often a place where maybe the family wasn't there to pay for the marble headstone. The catacombs in Paris are, and what, what was wonderful about this story for me personally is that Jeff, um, when Jeff Belanger was telling this story, he, um, I had been there. I've been in those catacombs. So I, I was really able to visualize his setting. And the other part that I really love is that we know him for founding Ghost Village and for doing the um, New England Legends. And he's written tons of wonderful books, Encyclopedia of Haunted Places. And he's got this great podcast and he makes, you know, it's always, he appears on TV all the time. And he's a really, mm-hmm. really nice man and a really um, talented writer. And so as a fan of his, what made it extra special is that he, he tells the story of his first paranormal, his first truly paranormal experience. And he was, had already started Ghost Village and was very interested in the paranormal. But this was the first time that he had had his, um, like a, an actual sighting where he, it kind of really changed his outlook and, and um, turned things kind of you know, turned him. I wouldn't say turned him to the other side. He was already interested in it, but it gave him this whole new perspective and really made him a believer. Um, and I love that, especially, I think that um, that probably shows in his writing as well. So the story is basically, so the catacombs in Paris are these underground tombs. Um, There's a series of tunnels and rooms. And what happened is that the, you know, there was no more room. Paris was was overrun. There's no more room left in the cemeteries, but there's all these underground areas and tunnels and sewer systems. Um, You know, during the plague, during um, various, sort of bouts of tuberculosis and horrible illness. There were so many bodies that there was nowhere to put them, plus no one to pay for their burial. And so the catacombs were formed. And they're pretty, um, if you are claustrophobic, it's not a great place to be. They're not tight as in the ceilings are low, 
but um, you're go- you're underground, and it feels like you're underground. Um, I think there's a little little bit of light as you first go in there, and there's there's light in there, of course. And I mean, the the rooms are you're not your head isn't grazing the ceiling, although he's pretty tall. So I think for him, his head was probably um, you know he had to duck to get in through the different entrances and such. So the picture a hall where the, the the walls instead of being you know stucco or drywall are are skulls skulls just piled on top of one another. Sometimes there might be an arrangement like a heart or a, a um, you know some different kind of designs. Essentially, what would happen is that you know these would be like people who were in a mass grave, and then the um, the skeletons were exhumed and they were arranged. And it was really actually meant to be um, not gruesome, but a an homage. It was a way of giving these bones a resting place, um, a somewhat artful resting place, rather than just being in some pit somewhere. So just basically he goes down there and um you know i don't want to i don't want to completely give away his whole story but he's walking down uh and as as well known as these are they're pretty hard to find and there's not a lot of people that actually really go for it and go all the way in there so i know for myself it was many years ago when i was there i was alone in the catacombs for a good chunk of time, completely alone. I didn't have any paranormal experiences there. Um, I was pretty enraptured, but I didn't have any paranormal experiences. But he essentially saw a a ghost there. Um, There was a man walking down the aisle, and um, he couldn't figure out how that person wasn't at the end of the row when it dead ended and he couldn't have gone past him and it's 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 a beautiful story i encourage you to uh, buy the book and read it because it's really uh it's really great and i had a I, I one of the things i did in that book is i made sure that when i included someone's story i didn't just have them like oh just send it over to me or um i i actually just either sat down with them or had a phone call with them and had them tell me the story and I took notes and uh, I didn't record it. I just took notes and I listened, I took notes and then I very quickly went and wrote the whole thing up and then I sent it back to them and I said, and and said, did I get this right? Because I really wanted to capture a little bit of that essence of that storytelling of like, you know, just the, the, instance of of them telling me and just try I was trying to capture their voice but also be able to keep a cohesive voice within the within the book and I you know that so that's what I did and then um you know they were people were able to go through and say uh you totally got the name of that wrong or whatever whatever it was so I'm forever grateful to him for sharing that story with me but I'll never forget more than being able to put it in my book with just sitting on the phone and just listening to this story and there I am you know sitting in my dining room but I'm not in my dining room at all 
I'm with Jeff Belanger and I'm in the the Paris catacombs and there's some sort of like ghost with a hat walking, you know, I mean, it was just very, mm-hmm. very um, transfixing to, to listen to. So hopefully it comes across in the um, book as well as it did into my ears. <laughs> yeah. And if uh, people like uh, Jeff's story in your paranormal parlor, you know, they can always find the old 30-odd minutes video oh, yeah. of you two. <laughs> that one goes yeah. way back. Yeah, yeah that's with, really – that's a that's an old one. That's funny. Yeah, there's – the 30 odd minutes. Yeah. That, I think that was one of my first video interviews actually was that. And it was a good one because he was, he was so goofy, but it, it was done on, on uh, the computer. Right. So I had to actually put a note to myself to not, not look at the screen. Cause when someone's talking to you on the screen, you're looking at them, but you're at, but in the video you're looking off to the side. So I had to put a little note up by the camp, the webcam that said, look here, because that way I would look like I was looking right at the camera the whole time. So. <laughs> that was silly. So it, it was, it was a good uh, video. And, and I think when um, I first in, introduced the idea of having you as a guest of Barbara, it's like, you know, I think I sent that to her as a, a uh, sample. I was like, oh, this, this is what Bar- Barley could do. And, you know, Barbara really enjoyed it. And, um, um, like I said, it's, it just keeps getting better with each show, show after, since then. So, uh, that one, I, I, and J- Jeff was is a nice guy. I, I worked with him to set up a couple other shows, and uh, yeah, yeah, that was a neat, yes, neat TV show he had going on there for a couple years. Oh, actually, speaking of TV, I think so. I was on last in June. Is that is that right? I think I was on your guys' show in June. Because it was before I had gone down to the Turks and such. That sounds, that sounds right. So I had um, I was on CBS Sunday Morning with Faith Saley, and they came and they talked to me, and they did a bit on mermaids, and they called me up and said, "Oh, we were wondering if you would um, want to, you know, answer a few questions about mermaids." And I was like, "Oh, of course I." We're talking, and she says, "Well, actually, we want you to be on the show." I said, "Oh, okay." And I'm thinking, okay, they're going to, like, do they Skype on CBS Sunday morning? I don't think they do. And she said, well, you said, where are you based? And I'm thinking, okay, they must have, like, an affiliate studio. I just go into the studio. And she said, oh, no, no, we send a film crew to your house. <laughs> so they sent a film crew to my house, and we hung out for, you know, I don't know, five hours. And we filmed, and we walked and we lunched and um it was really it was really right. fun but that that segment i have that segment the link to it up on my website if anybody um wants to see the cbs sunday morning because it's it's really cute they also had some 
a little bit of mermaid history and then uh, Faith goes and she tries to swim at this mermaid school at Wikiwachi Springs in Florida. And it's really just like this, it's a, you know, very professionally done, beautiful segment. And they were just such nice people and just the producer and Faith were just, they were lovely. And the, the, the crew, the film crew and the, the, the cameraman and the um, sound guy, we all went to lunch together. I mean, it was just like, hanging out with friends. It was really, it was really great. So, um, okay, uh, yeah, watch that segment. Uh, it's fun. Okay. Uh, just do, do a shameless plug for your website. Oh, yes. Since you I just shall. mentioned it. Yes, it's varlaventura.net. So, that's all. I think if you just <laughs> type in, yeah, varlaventura, then you'll probably, that will come up. And that's where I, I try and, you know, keep those kind of things um, and, and radio appearances and things like that. I try and keep it up to date with that. Okay. It, but, uh, did, did you want to uh, cover the uh, Mark Twain channeling or since we're talking about mermaids, do you, uh, do you want to get into any of the, uh, you know, real – authentic mermaid stories that they aren't uh the um compassionate no, I, I, beautiful level loving creatures oh, <laughs> but actually i want to um tell you about something else i want to totally jump ship okay and i want to okay. i want to ask you because um i haven't gone and I have always wanted to go and I wanted to ask you if you know about the Bram Stoker Festival in Dublin Ireland it's every year uh, no, I haven't thought toward oh it's like if you, uh, because I know you're a fan of Bram Stoker and yeah it's every year <laughs> excuse me it's every year and it's um the kind of in the week before Halloween there's a series of events. It's usually four or five days long and it's just, you know, it's just called the Bram Stoker festival. They do, um, seance reenactments, um, showings of various movies that are inspired or based on Bram Stoker stories, lots of vampire stuff. Um, just, uh, talks and lectures about him as a writer um, you know, pub crawls, of course, just like a whole, a whole, like four or five day festival, just that sort of, you know, vampiric and really, you know, in homage to Bram Stoker. And I had never heard of it. And I actually, when I was uh, going, I don't know how I'd never heard of it. Maybe it, I, I honestly don't know how this was off my radar, but I read about it in the, um, you know, the in-flight magazine, Aer Lingus in-flight magazine had all of this info about these different festivals in Ireland. And it said in October, don't miss the Brown Stoker Festival in Dublin, which is where he's from. And he went to school. I think he was born in Dublin and he went to school at Trinity College right there, mm-hmm. um, right there in Dublin. So uh, I know that we've talked about Brown Stoker on and off before, but I just, yeah. wanted to share that informa- information specifically with you, but also with all the listeners. But I knew you would get a kick out of that. And you can put that on your, like, uh, ultimate travel bucket list. 
it sounds very and you know it's really interesting that he went to uh Trinity College uh because that's where they have the famous book of Kells on display. Yes, I saw it. Hey. I saw the book of Kells, yeah. I'd always wanted to and I'd never been willing to shill out the twenty five bucks before, but this this time I just said, I gotta do it. And you know what? It's worth it. But the reason it's worth it is not for the Book of Kells, in my opinion. It's worth it because you get into the old library. That's why it's worth it. Because mm-hmm. you get into this, like, library that looks like it should be part of Hogwarts. I mean, it's got, you know, rows and rows of all these magical books and statues and archways and card catalogs. And it just smells like old book in there. And it's just so huge and beautiful the great hall and this old library and that you have to go by the book of Kells you literally have to pass by the book of Kells to get up into the old library it's quite yes, impressive so if I had just realized that many years ago I would have probably paid the money for it but because um, I you know I just Oh, Book of Kells. And the Book of Kells is cool. It's pretty, but it's kind of hard to see. And there's a lot of people jammed around. Um, well, at least when I was there, there were just a lot of people jammed around it. And so you you can't really get, uh, you can see it well, but you can't really, you know, get to know it. <laughs> can't get that close to it, really. So. Okay. Um you know, uh, you know, Barbara. Maybe uh, Blog Talk can do a all expenses paid uh, post appreciation type trip to the, this festival, uh, Bram Stoker Festival. What do you think? <laughs> well, well, I'll 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 put it up to management and see what they say. <laughs> oh, management! You can't trust management. <laughs> <laughs> They have the first strings. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's it sounds like uh, well, just, just anything. Uh, go, going back to Ireland for you know, uh, these things we've been talking about, it, 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 it sounds like it'd just be a lot of fun. Or, or, well, uh, you know, Mark, yeah, you Mark, go ahead and do it. Just save us. your receipts. <laughs> and we can laugh at Thank them you. all together. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> to whom do I turn them in? Management, of course. Uh, I don't know if you have their email yeah. or not. So. <laughs> you know, uh, it'll be. You know, I'll have to make another call to the. the they, they're really English quite robo amazing. They babe. Have, they have circular offices. <laughs> In one door, out the other. <laughs> yeah, I kind of yeah, it's, it, it, and yeah. it's going to be like a Tradition, traditionally called dog chasing basket. its tail. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, now we better get back to the creepy stuff. Uh, we're getting too too silly for for the. Uh, uh, Solemnness of the season, but uh, I do. Barla, do you want to get into the um, 
the uh, Mark Twain story from your paranormal yeah, parlor of course, book? Of or, course. Yeah, that's it, I, it. Does fit? Yeah, fit it. Oh, okay. No, I was just going to say I, I, I um. I did also just want to share a little thing because this is related to the origins sure. of Halloween. So I thought this would be kind of fun for, you know, what with it being October and all. But um, I, and it, it actually relates to mermaids, believe it or not, but it also, of course, relates to the fairy kingdom. And it was just a little bit of the reiteration that I hope comes across somewhat in my books, but that is certainly a philosophy of mine. And, um, well, it's not my philosophy at all. It's, it's the, um, the Irish way, but, um, it's some, and it's a belief I really, uh, subscribe to. And it's the idea that, you know, the, the fairy kingdom isn't, it's associated with the underworld. And it is associated with all manner of beastly, goblin-y, ghoulish things. But that, that does not inherently make it an evil place or a dark place or a scary place, except on one night of the year. And that is All Hallows Eve. That is Halloween or Samhain as the, in, you know, in the Celtic tradition. And that is the night in which the gate, that portal, that cave, and there are caves throughout Ireland that are known as caves that uh, are, are as portals into the underworld. And there was one that I went to um, on this trip that was very, there was a very specific story associated with it. And you can go inside the cave. I didn't go inside the cave. We had to prearrange that and, um, I obviously don't plan ahead really <laughs> that much, but the, the, the I would have idea, never guessed. <laughs> the idea is that um, you just got to kind of feel things out sometimes, but the idea that will not be unfamiliar to your listeners is the idea of Halloween being a time when this veil is thin and the, that we dress as, beasts and ghoulies and ghosts to sort of blend in so that our our souls aren't sucked back into that underworld so that the uh, devilish little things that are dancing about and the witches and the the wild things don't mistake us they think we're we're among them we're one of them and they don't harass us they just continue on with their revelry and in the Celtic tradition, this would be basically usually um, Morgan or sometimes it would be Maeve, depending on the story. But it was a goddess, a woman, who would open that portal. She would just open that portal and on sewing. She opens the portal and all these things stream out. You've got, you've got uh, werewolfy things and vampires and... Um, all the little things that we, you know, try and dress up as on Halloween. And the idea is kind of to just uh, unleash all of these things, let them have their night of revelry, and then uh, close it up because now we're going into a time of darkness, the the coldness of winter, the uh, lack of, of agriculture and green things. 
traditionally, right, especially you can think of um, in Ireland, there's definitely a big turning of the seasons at that time. Here where mm-hmm. I live, you know, everything's turning, the trees are dying. And so it's it's like, it's that idea kind of, you know, of Mardi Gras or whatever. You're really getting it out of your system because you're entering into a kind of a more somber time. And it's important to enter into that without fear or um, uh, uh, anger or danger. You really are kind of like purging your system of those things. And there were a couple, I had a couple of kind of new perspectives on that just based on talking to a couple uh, local anthropologists near this cave and their take on it. And that that marking of the seasons really was so pivotal in making sure that people were ready. You'd already had your harvest party. You've already stored everything. And um, I mean, in many ways, it can almost be looked at. This is probably like, you know, a dissertation in another life. But the idea that it's almost a way to combat seasonal sadness it's, it's almost a way to, to combat depression because if you can remember that you have sort of moved among and spoken with and acknowledged and made offering and danced with the fairies and the goblins and the ghouls you can go into the winter with more strength. And I thought maybe that is, is really why so many people I know are so attracted to Halloween, not, not just because of all you know, a love of horror and things like that, but because we share a penchant toward darkness and it is actually this kind of um, burning bright bonfire that can carry you through until, uh, you know, the, the days get longer again. And it was really a, a kind of a cool, I didn't mean to talk about Halloween. I was there in the middle of summer, but it, I didn't bring it up. It just came up and there was all of this information about it that I, some I knew, um, but like any subject that you're interested in, there's always a new perspective. There's always something new to learn. And I really like that. I've, I've always been very interested in, you know, Dia de los Muertos and the kind of honoring of the ancestors and, and really that aspect of Halloween and that time of year. But this was kind of another, and it was almost a more psychological approach to it. And um, mm-hmm. I really, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. So just well, wanted to you, share that well, little tidbit. I, 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 you just mentioned the, um, you know, talking with the anthropologists and, uh, you know, this is one of those times of the years where, where you know, people might start getting the uh, – First symptoms of the seasonal affective disorder, but it, it, it mm-hmm. is is this the hol, uh, holiday when the, there were the big bonfires uh, that were built on tops of the hills, like the Hill of Slain? Is that yeah? Is that the right well, hol? Is, a, is it the right holiday I'm talking about? 
Yes, there are a lot of holidays in Ireland and Scotland that involve bonfires. Just so you know, like I mean, that's it's pretty. It's that's that's a big mark um, of uh, a celebration. At, for example, you know, Hogmanay in in Scotland is really the New Year's celebration, and they do um, they do bonfires all over the night. Walpurgis Nacht is another, you know, the witches' night where there are bonfires all over, you know, Germany and Ireland and different different parts of the world. But a bonfire is usually a huge part of it. And that is, you know, part of the kind of dancing around the flame and and keeping the, the goblins and, and ghouls at bay, but also dancing with them. It kind of gives you that opportunity to really explore that dark side in kind of a safe way and, um, you know, just really embrace that. It's almost like, I don't know. I think, I think people, I think that's why people go to places like Burning Man because they're like, you know, wearing their suit and tie too, it's too tight and they just don't have the, they don't have the chance to really express their true nature. So they go to a place, where they can um, really be whatever they want to be. And they need that kind of, they need that permission to, to be that. And I think that Halloween mm-hmm. does give us all that to a certain extent. Still, I mean, it's fun. It's like, what are you going to be for Halloween? Oh, I'm going to be a, and you can be anything you want to be, something you admire, something you um, are always, like I have close to the same costume every year. So. <laughs> I'm surprisingly boring when it comes to Halloween <laughs> costumes. That is, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, you know that that does what, what you just said just uh, does fit into with uh, some ideas we're working on with or, where we're going to be looking at uh, human monsters and. Who you may think they are when you talk to them on the computer, but in reality, that they're somebody really freaky you don't want to mess with. So uh, that's going to be a theme we're going to develop. But what you said is interesting, and you get all the, you know, like, uh, yeah, you know, like women dresses hookers and guys dresses girls for Halloween. So you know, you get that weird kind of stuff going on too, and you know, and just be what you want to be. That's kind of it, it's fun. Can it can be strange. Yeah, it can be good strange. It can be kind of strange, strange for sure. But I but traditionally. The reason that you would dress as like a little little devil or a witch or a ghost is because yeah. you were actually um, out there. To, and the children would dress like that because it would protect them on that night. They would be able to go around and collect their candy or their – sometimes people would – so you'd have a big bonfire and a lot of, a lot of times – the children would go and they would be getting donations from the wealthy houses. So you'd have, 
you know, the, the peasant village and then the children would be dressed up and they would go and they would get their, um, the food and the drink and the, you know, wealthy people were, they needed to basically make these donations. And that sort of evolved into you know, handing out candy. That, that, that tradition turned into slowly, especially once we were in the United States, um, that tradition turned into trick-or-treat. And fairies love to play tricks. So the trick part of Halloween, you can really attribute to the fairy kingdom. And speaking of being all all these different uh, something you're not uh, you know most people aren't going to expect of you um, you know playing tricks on others um, one of the things that didn't realize and, and you have a uh, uh, a couple samples in Banshees, Werewolves, and Vampires, and you know, I think it's in uh, Paranormal Parlor, is um, some works from Sabine Baring Gould, and he's a minister who wrote you know, the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers, but he's also writing um, these, like, the the most well-respected books on werewolves. You know, that kind of fits in with uh, a little bit about what what we've been talking. Uh, It just, you know, he... He's one of these people that that just uh, throws that curveball at us uh, about a, a minister's real interests, and he's like look, looking at all these <laughs> Norwegian werewolves, and I, uh, you know, they also show up in Iceland. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about his career as a werewolf researcher? Yeah, I mean, you absolutely, I mean, he he's uh, Sabine Baring-Gould. He was a reverend, um, but probably most famously known for writing the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers. And he did quite a bit of traveling, probably spreading the word of God um, throughout parts of Scandinavia, up into somewhat into Finland, Lapland kind of area, and then into Eastern Europe primarily, um, but but mostly kind of in the, the northern countries. And he's English. And he, he was a really interesting, very well-educated man, um, had a lot of, uh, wrote a lot about the philosophy of, everything people the way that people look at things the way that um in man's relationship with god all those kinds of things 
And he had published a couple of other books, and, and that was actually fairly common at the time because reverends or um, people of the clergy were typically more educated and so could read and write um, and were often then the scribes. Throughout history, you, you do see that. And um, so he traveled around, but he, because he was, I mean, I think there was, this is speculation on my part completely, because I didn't know the guy. But from his works, and he wrote this massive volume on werewolves, which I have read the entire thing, and it is crazy long and very Victorian. So it took some time, and I probably really understood, you know, a third of what I was reading most of the time. Like, da 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 oh, werewolf. Okay, there we are again. <laughs> but he, um, he was a very intelligent man, and he was very interested in other cultures, right? We know this. He's traveling around. So he would write down and record instances of werewolves. Sometimes his things were just what he wrote were just stories that other people relayed to him, legends. Uh, other times they were his observations. Um, and of course, these were totally imbued with a uh, religious point of view and a misunderstanding of the culture to a certain extent with an attempt to understand the culture. But there were instances of descriptions of things that would not be that that's not how a local would have put it, we'll just say. So he's both playing up the idea of werewolves as these ferocious beasts, um, inadvertently becoming one of the foremost experts on werewolves and werewolf legends. Specifically, that, I mean, this book is, were it to be in print today, it would probably be 800 pages long. I mean, it is a tome. Oh, wow. It is a tome, and there is a lot going on in there. But he also spends a lot of time speculating on um, the mentality of mankind and what is it in us that might make a werewolf. And he really has a, some, some wonderful sort of discourse with himself about, well, he actually gets into pregnant women and their hormones, which might be why the book never got published. <laughs> But he does talk about kind of these extreme fluctuations that we have these in, in, attributed to hormones, attributed to life changes, attributed to whatever, you know, being a woman, hysteria, all these things. And that those are actually evidence that werewolves exist. And the way he kind of connects it all is the idea that any one of us might at any point, lose it. You could completely lose it. If someone made you mad enough and really threatened you enough or threatened someone you love, you you could, yeah. I think we've all been that mad at least one point in their life. If you haven't, good for you. But if, you know, you've ever just been so angry that you've seen red and you feel like you don't have control over your own hands or your you're just kind of 
losing control of your body to a certain extent. Not that you're going to go into a violent, murderous rage, but that is actually the thing that happens next is the violent, murderous rage or the, um, you know, the lashing out or uh, these kinds of things. So this is, this is all his argument, not mine. This is his argument that these things are inherent in every human and that we must fight against them, but it is it is plausible that our nature for some people can actually turn to the point that we would become werewolves. So again, he's using this argument that werewolves are real. And that's what really, really tripped me out about the guy's entire book was just that he he isn't just talking about philosophy and um, recording these stories. He's kind of using them because you can tell that he believes in werewolves. But I imagine that if you, it was 1880 and you spent enough time in the dark Scandinavian woods, you too would believe in werewolves. So it kind of makes sense, but it's really, yeah, Mm -hmm. he's really an interesting character. And a lot of what we have, that exists today that we know about werewolves. Um, you know, he, he did record it. He's not really known for that, but many, many people who have written werewolf stories, I would be very surprised if they hadn't read his book at some point. Interesting. Um, uh, point you made and it, 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 it that that book just sounds like it, it's a fascinating. Uh, I don't know what uh, compilation of like folklore and anthropology. Uh, what sci-fi? It's like a little yeah, a little yeah, yeah. thrown it, in there. Yeah. It, it, but but you know from what you have uh, you know all uh, um, you know if we have to you know co- cover that book in more detail you know it's uh, uh, I just need a little bit more time to read an 800 page book I, you know I think we have uh, quite a few of those already lined up <laughs> but, well and, and that's the thing it's not an easy read. So maybe it wouldn't be 800 pages long, but it sure feels like it. It's not an easy read. It really isn't. There are parts of it that are easy, and uh, it just in that you can quickly kind of see that there's something there that you really mm-hmm. want to grab hold of. Um, but overall, it's a, it's a difficult read. You, you have to go back and, like, Make sure you're understanding the language, and um, so it's it's not only is it really 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 long, it's probably the most boring book on werewolves you'll ever read, and that's like the sad way to put it. It's totally worth reading. It's amazing. There are things in there that are in no other book, and it's, I mean, technically it's not fiction. So, but it's. Uh, if you're just expecting, you know, I'm summarizing it in a much more colorful way than you'll 
when you read it, you'll see what I mean. And you can read, you can dip in and out of it and find, you know, pieces of it. But um, it's definitely not the most, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong. It's worth reading if you really are into werewolves or you're doing research on folklore, paranormal at all. But um, don't read it if you're tired. <laughs> Do not but, uh, read it if you're sleepy at all, because you won't okay, well, you, 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 <laughs> you know, the, you know, there are some sections on shape shifting. Yeah, that's not uh, it's something that you would expect a minister to be uh, delving into. Or lycanthropic streams. You, you do not expect a minister to really be, you know, kind of even talking about waters and, and plants that will transform you into a werewolf. But he does. Right. I, I, yeah, I, I, the, 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 I, I thought that was information that you brought out that I I didn't know I you know, never really uh thought too much about um a Christian hymn writer uh getting into werewolves but it you know when we've had Jason Gerald on uh you know we've looked at uh you know like a couple of the sh- shaman they were buried in uh, some of the uh, mounds in the Ohio rivers where you know, they had these like bear or wolf jaws uh, actually inserted into their their, their mouths and they're uh, uh, draped in like a bear costume. I, it, it's like the same concept that um, – you know, this minister is writing about in the 1880s what was being done here in America, you know, 2,000 years earlier. It's just really right. interesting yeah. that the same concept just has been there for thousands of years. Right. By the time he came along and was even recording it, it had been already taking place. I mean, these were like old, old traditions. And then you, you know, it's, it's, but it's also interesting how few people really sat down and, or traveled around and, I mean, he was kind of like the Grimm brothers of um, Mm -hmm. werewolves. And the only other resource that I found that isn't just fiction stories um, is Elliot O'Donnell, who is another one of my favorite Irish writers and he kind of, he, he really struck a chord with me because a lot of the stories that you read, especially um, accounts and uh, paranormal investigations during that spiritualist movement. So like 1840 to say 1930, especially, and even prior to 1840, you find these sort of stories where people don't really believe 
And Elliot O'Donnell had a series of paranormal experiences happen to him when he was about eight years old. So unlike many of the other writers and sort of Victorian era investigators, he, he wrote ghost stories, um, but he also researched folklore and things like that. But he, he, he was a believer. He wasn't a skeptic and he had had enough experiences that he felt that, um, you know, he, he felt that that was evidence enough to him. Uh, but he also was probably one of my other best resources on um, werewolves because he did, he did also some research in Lapland and other parts of Scandinavia hmm. about the werewolves there and compared them to some of the uh, traditions in Ireland where he was from. And I think time and time again, you had these traditions where you, you know, whatever time of year they're for, they have different significance. There's times when there's festivals, when there's people donned in um, furs and cloaked in with, with bear claws. And then you have, um, you know, the mummers who are those kind of sort of odd Irish straw fellows that, that, you know they're kind of like yeah they're 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 very distinct looking so you have times when people put on these costumes and they are embodying whatever it is that they are either afraid of or they're trying to invoke so they need that power and it might be the same thing right it could be the same thing you're both afraid and um in awe of and in reverence of this thing, like a bear that could feed your entire family for the entire winter and also could kill your entire family in one swoop. So there's this need to kind of pay that homage to it. And you see that in cultures throughout the world. And then you see the peepers of those cultures who are coming from like a very anglicized, Christian point of view, not dogging Christians here. I'm just talking about that kind of ethnocentrism where, you know, there's only this one true way and they are observing these things and they're calling them heathens and savages. And, um, and we know that these are actually these very specific, very important rituals. They're, they're calling them werewolves and, um, witches, and they are actually the ones that are, you know, healing the healing people and, um, you know, performing rituals in, in for the good of the community. It can be a community bonding. There's all these things going on that are simply recorded as being heathen because they're drinking something that looks like blood, but maybe it's just a root that tastes really good, or it could be beets. I mean, who knows? But it's just very interesting because a lot of what we have in that, like, written record and what we know today and a lot of our stories are based on really does come from this grand boom in literacy during the Victorian era, which had a, has a lot of – there's a lot of great things that came out of that. But at the same time, you did have a very kind of like civilized point of view looking down its nose at, um, you know, just some really important cultural 
experiences that were happening. So, and Varla, while we're still d discussing uh, werewolves, um, you know, uh, I like we can't uh, you know, pa pass up having a brief discussion about the cutest um, werewolf uh, uh, Elizabethan type girl on the cover of your Banshees, Werewolves, and Vampires book. Uh, it's oh, it's really maiden. one of the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's really one of the most eye-catching uh, covers of any book I've seen. Uh, t tell us a little bit about yeah, the artist and the idea behind that, that artwork. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, that was designed by a man named Jim Warner, who actually died a couple years ago. Um, he designed the covers for almost all of my books. He did Among the Mermaids. He did Fairies, Pookas, and Changelings. And he did Banshees, Werewolves, Vampires, and Other Creatures of the Night. And he actually, I remember when he showed me the piece of art, it, it's um, from an old, I think it's from an old fairy tale. It was from like the cover of an old fairy tale or an ad from an old fairy tale. And I don't know how he found it. He was a master of finding the right piece of art for the, for the book. For example, the cover of Among the Mermaids shows all these mermaids and very beautiful. It was actually an old hair tonic ad that it, where Among the Mermaids, that's where the ad would have been for this like hair tonic that would give you like flowing locks like a mermaid. So we think that this was some kind of advertising, but we're not absolutely sure. Um, but it, you know, it looks very Eastern European. But when he showed it to me, it just, you know, I mean, it's completely like this incredibly sweet werewolf. And I fell in love with it. And we just knew right away it was the right cover. And he just did a really beautiful job of it. Um, but I don't, we don't know what it was actually advertising. Um, it could have been advertising hair tonic as well, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, maybe it was advertising razors, but she's holding a little, um, little package, which always looks like a book to me. And I don't know. I just assumed it was female. You know, she's in a dress, but it was kind of that mm -hmm. bearded lady. But what's really nice about it is that, you usually see these kinds of things looking very ferocious, but this one is maiden and covered in fur, um, but also covered in flowers and beautiful patterns and things. So Jim Warner, love that man. And uh, yeah, he just did a really, really great job with that. And I don't know, he had, he had archives. He had worked in book design for years and he just, he just had, he had a little magic to him. He just got things and he would, 
oh, what, what's, what's this book okay? And then I can't even I – mean, the problem with him is he would show you two or three things and you loved them all. So then you just had to, you know, say, well, I like that one the most. And then I don't really have final say in any regards over what my books look like. My publisher has to say because their ideas to put what they think is going to do best in the market because they're the publishing experts. I'm the writer. But that being said, writers always get a look at it and get to say, at least with my publisher, we get to say, I hate it or, oh, my gosh, I love it so much. Um, and so in this case, it was a total love affair. Okay. And um, it's, I, 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 I've always enjoyed uh, that artwork. It, it, it's, it's, it's perfect for you. I, I, it, it just captures The unexplained very well. I I I just like I I I just really find it captivating. But um, and and in your paranormal parlor book, I I I think it's your paranormal parlor book. Uh, um, since something like uh. Yeah, you, you you could tell us about your leprechaun story over cocktails. So let's pretend we're having cocktails. We have about uh, seven minutes left. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna drink. It might be a better uh, St. Patrick's Day story, but yeah, you know, it's uh, something unexplained for Halloween. Well, I I learned a lot about leprechauns in researching my paranormal, um, sorry, my fairies, pugas, and changelings uh, book. And so I learned that they were more than just, you know, these green clad little fellas holding, holding on to all the gold. They have a lot of interesting relationships with um, uh, kind of – being cobblers and um, little red caps and there's a lot to them but I think what you're asking about is the story that I saw leprechaun when I was a kid and that is a story that I didn't really feel super comfortable sharing for many many years just like a lot of people say oh you know I had this ghost experience but I didn't really um I really uh, want to yeah, I don't really believe or whatever and with something like a leprechaun most people are not going to believe you anyway they're not going to believe that you saw a leprechaun but when I was a kid I saw a leprechaun <laughs> I was playing down by this creek and I saw a what looked like kind of a smallish man um more I would say more sort of dressed foresty than dressed, you know, all fine with like a, a vest and, and hat and waistcoat and such on. Um, just this kind of like foresty looking little thing. And it was, it had a, you know, had a man's face, but it was definitely seemed more animal-like. And I was just 
I, we lived uh, by this river. So we moved to a very rural area and lived by this river for about three months. We lived in a trailer, my mom, my sister, my, um, and my dad and I. And that's, that was just our family at the time. And we would, my sister and I would play all the time on this creek. And there were lots of people around all the time. Then summer ended. And all the kids went back to school, and we hadn't moved yet. My parents were actually in the process of purchasing some property. And so we were at this basically empty campground along the river and with this creek flowing into it. So I'm playing down there one day, just playing by this creek, and I see this guy, this leprechaun, and I immediately just yell, which would be like probably you know, not the thing to do if you see a leprechaun, don't scream out loud. But I just yelled and I said, um, Mom, you've got to come see this. There's a leprechaun over here. And in that just split second of turning and shouting and then turning back, there was nothing there, of course. But what I'll never forget is that the leaf was moving as if something had been there and had darted off like a rabbit would dart off. So, I mean, that's my leprechaun story. It's not a super convincing one. Uh, I don't really have a lot of evidence, but I will say that we frequently tend to dismiss things that happen to ourselves as children, as we also dismiss children's stories when they tell us things about the paranormal or things that they've seen. And I think that that's a big mistake because I do think kids Mm -hmm. have the ability to see things without filters and to... Um, tell you things and it's not until you as an as an adult or we as adults tell them that they should be afraid or that it doesn't exist they they you know they don't know that up until that point so I do think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot more credibility like I don't dismiss it because I was a kid I just don't have any physical evidence other than my memory of it, but it's a very vivid memory. And I'd had a Mm -hmm. few other paranormal experiences at that point. And this was very different from, uh, you know, a ghost sitting on the end of my bed or anything like that. So, and I'm lucky because my mom didn't tease me about it or anything. She just said, actually my mom said, where? And then probably went out under full moonlight after all the children were asleep and tried to invoke the leprechaun. So <laughs> that's probably more like what what had happened. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I'm glad you shared the story with us, and uh, I just want to bring out more uh, of your uh, enthralling cap. Uh, you know, the observations from another one of your books, and you know we're gonna have to keep uh, having you come back to get, give us uh, more since we're almost out of time. So, uh, you know, Barbara, do you want to wrap up the show now for us? So I don't, yeah, you know, just uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're probably gonna have, have have to have you do it since both of us babble so much, and we need a referee to end the show for us. 
Uh, I'd be happy to, Mark. I want to thank everybody for being with here to, with us here tonight, and certainly Varla's books are amazing. So please do check them out there on Amazon, and uh, I, I believe I have them on my website as well. Uh, do check them out. They are wonderful reads. They're enticing. They're enchanting, um, educational, enjoyable, and, and uh, informational. Uh, it, it's a win-win always round. We're looking forward to seeing everybody next week. We have a lot of shows scheduled. And uh, visit our YouTube channel. If you enjoy what you listen to and hear, please subscribe to it. Thanks for being with us tonight. And uh, do keep touch with us because we are around a lot this next week. So, good night, everybody.